Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 213 of Dogcast Radio, which you can find on our website dogcastradio.com, along with countless canine resources. And if by any chance we haven't already covered something you're interested in, let me know and I'll get right onto it. Today, we'll be talking about dog sports and accessibility. Free disc, which is also known as freestyle in America and in Europe, and it is the one that I love very much because it's like dancing with discs. So it's really disco. And we have the Dogcast Radio News. But a recent survey shows that when it comes to romantic love, for at least 8 out of 10 people, it's a case of love me, love my dog. But before all that, we get into the often choppy waters of doggy diets. There are so many theories about how we should feed our dogs, it can leave your head spinning. So I like to look at what scientific research into dogs and diets has shown. Daniel Shuloff did exactly that and wrote a book about the science of dog food. What he learned not only changed his approach to feeding his own dogs, it horrified him and led him to founding his own dog food company, Keto Natural Pet Foods. Today I'm talking to Daniel Shuloff. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. As we were just saying, we're joined by the wonder of modern technology. It's it's early in the morning here in lovely Salt Lake City, Utah in the United States. Yes, well, it's late afternoon here in Shropshire, in the Shropshire Hills. So a bit of a difference, but there you go. But as you say, technology is bringing us together and it's, it's lovely to, to be with you. So we're going to talk about a really, really important issue, um, definitely for our dogs, for some of us, it's, it's a personal issue as well, but I won't talk about that. That will be a different podcast, but it's obesity. <laughs> yeah, it's an issue that's close to my heart. I um, uh, I wrote a book about the subject, and um, it's basically been, in one way or another, the, the defining issue of my professional life, understanding why so many animals, uh, you know, pet animals in the Western world, suffer from this completely preventable disease that has such horrible consequences. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's easy as an owner to look at your dog. And I used to have this conversation about Buddy early on, my black Labrador. And people would say, you know, oh, he's a bit overweight. Like, no, he's not. He's not. He tucks up. Look, he's got a waist. He's, I, looking back, I can see he was he a was little, little on the chunky side early on. I think particularly for me as he aged and I sort of thought, gosh, I want to keep him with me as long as possible. And that beca- became more of a pressing issue that the weight issue began to <laughs> to weigh more on my mind if you no no pun intended there but you know it it is something that became more and more to the forefront of my mind so so tell us because it's easy to look at your dog and think oh he's a little bit chubby but it's just cute um but tell me is how much of a problem is obesity in our dogs so there are two facts that I like to um communicate when I'm trying to kind of impress on somebody I've just met just how important uh, uh, obesity should be as an issue for a pet owner. One is concerns kind of just how common the disease is, and it is a disease. In the United States, at least, and I don't have equivalent facts for the UK, but in the United States right now, if you pick a dog at random on the street, you just pick the next dog you run into on the street, the odds are better, it's more likely than not, that the dog is overweight or obese. So more than half of the dogs in the United States right now are overweight or obese, which is just staggering to me because it's, you know, it's a condition 
that you don't it's a exclusively a, what, what I what I call a disease of civilization. Yes. If you go and you speak to a biologist who studies wolves in their wild habitat or any other kind of wild canine and you ask them What's the approximate rate of obesity among these animals? They will laugh at you. They will tell you that that, <laughs> that is a that is a non-issue for wild animals. Even the biggest wolves who have the most access to the most food, those animals never become obese. 0.0%. Okay. So it's really striking to see that it's so common in in pets in the western world. Mm. And then the other fact that I like to tell people is concerns just how serious a problem the disease is for each animal that suffers from it. So studies, uh, the kind of um, landmark study in the United States of the issue of what does obesity do um, to a dog in terms of health was conducted by this team of researchers. And um, they basically, they spent 15 years on this one project. They started off with a group of, of puppies all from the same litter, uh, maybe a few, a few litters. They were kind of matched together. And they, they did a really simple experiment. They, they split them up into two groups, and then they followed them throughout their entire lives. And the only thing that was different is they allowed one group to effectively eat as much kibble as they wanted every day. And the other group got a kind of restricted ration. They got a, a, a smaller percentage than what the, um, the unlimited feeding group did. And so what happened is the unlimited feeding group got fat and the, uh, co- you know, comparatively with the other group and the other mm-hmm. groups comparatively lean. And it wasn't the case that anybody in this study became um, grossly, massively obese. We're talking about, I think, the same kind of body condition that you were describing when we first started talking about this. You know, perhaps a little too chunky. Yeah, could I do better about it? Probably, but it's not horrible. He still goes out for his walks, that kind of body condition. Whereas the dogs on the lean group were somewhat leaner. And what they found is, and then they followed these animals throughout their entire lives and they monitored their blood metrics and the diseases that they get and how long they live. And what they found is the dogs that were moderately overweight, so again, not like, uh, you know, their bellies weren't dragging in the sand, um, they lived a significantly shorter life than the dogs that were kept lean. And specifically, they lived so much shorter that w- the fact I like that this is all lead up to this fact, being moderately overweight has been shown to be worse for a dog than an entire lifetime of smoking is for a human being. So if you take their lives, their average lifespan, and compare it to the lifespan of a human being, if your dog is just moderately overweight, so again, just the kind of dog you're talking about, Mm -hmm. it's like animal is a lifelong smoker, which is obviously viewed as a a horrible uh, health risk um, among human beings. So Mm -hmm. it's a really serious problem. Yes. Yeah. My goodness. That is, that's a really sobering thought, isn't it? When you, when you couple that with how short their lives are anyway, my goodness, that's, that's horrific. And it's something we could, we could work on. We could do, you know, as you were saying that about it being a Western problem, I was in my little local village yesterday, went into the, um, the the church center and there were two posters on the door and one was for the local slimming club. And one was for the food bank and, you you know, where you can uh, go and donate food for people who can't afford to eat, who, you know, presumably are are not overweight. But those two juxtapositions of some of us can't control our intake and some of us can't manage to eat. And, you know, we're messing up ourselves, aren't we, as well as our dogs? 
Yeah, it's absurd. It's something it's like, yeah, it's 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 a paradox to think that those two things can exist at the same time. You can have people who don't have enough to eat while at the same time having people who are, um, you know, eating so much that it's it's dangerous yes. for their health. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a real shame. Yeah. And I mean, I think obviously what, you know, the things that you've said are, you know, horrific and need saying, and I'm glad you said them. But to give people hope, if you're, you know, if you're sitting at home looking at your dog and thinking, oh, gosh, yes, my dog is a little bit overweight or, you know, he's very overweight. You can do something about it, can't you? And straight away, because as I say, you know, Buddy was up to about, I don't know, four or five. Yes. You know, hands up. Yes, I can look back now and say, yeah, he was. He wasn't grossly overweight, but he was a little bit overweight, just as you've described. Um, but then I did start to limit, you know, be a little bit wiser and, and limit what he had. And he had nice things, but just a little bit. And he was always slim and he had, did have a proper waist and he did tuck up right to the end of his life when he was 15 and a half. But he made it to 15 and a half. I know that's anecdotal. That's not, you know, a, um, a big enough sample size, but you can do something about it, can't you now? Absolutely. Yeah, you can. And it doesn't matter how old the animal is. It's a kind of, um, what, what scientists call a dose response relationship. It's like at any point, if you start changing things, you're likely to see the numbers say you're likely to see a positive outcome. So yeah, it's something that can be done at any point by any owner. And in my humble experience, although it's pretty hard to understand what's truly going on between the ears of a, you know, a nonverbal animal like a dog at any time, in my humble experience, helping them lose weight has never been a particularly ugly experience for the dog. It's usually involved some measure of diet and some measure of exercise. And there are plenty of dietary things we can do that don't involve any kind of pain and suffering for the dog. And in my experience, exercise is a purely positive experience yes. for these animals. So it's never it's never something the dogs complain about. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it is, but I think you've hit on something that's really important, which is that it's difficult as an owner for social reasons that are kind of hard to put your finger on. It's difficult sometimes to admit that there's a problem worth correcting. Um, it just feels, it, it, you know, some pet owners feel guilty and some people feel defensive. You know, we've been as as human beings, we're 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 exposed to all kinds of cultural stigmas concerning obesity, and it feels bad to think of ourselves as being overweight or obese, and we get defensive, and so that's there for the animals too. Um, I try in my book to help pet owners feel better about it because it's my belief that being a pet owner and trying to uh, make good decisions for your animal, responsible decisions, keeping the animal healthy is incredibly difficult in the, yes. in the present environment. It's, there's a lot of misinformation. There are a lot of big, powerful um, you know, companies and other forces that are acting in ways that make it really difficult for you to make the best choices you can make for your animal. And I sympathize dramatically. So I never have any, um, personally, any kind of, um, I don't reproach anybody whose mm. animal is overweight. It's just not, it's too easy to sympathize with. Yes. I've seen it times. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, thinking about it, it does make such a difference because I can remember, as I say, my dog was a, was a Labrador and he was always nicely shaped. But I, we used to be out on a walk and we'd meet some Labradors that looked, they just looked like a barrel on legs. They were just, you know, almost completely round on legs. And, and they were having trouble, you know, they were suffering in the heat. They were perhaps not being as mobile as they should. And I would say, Oh, how old are they? And I would expect to be told they were, you know, 10, 11, 12. And they go, Oh, they're five. And you think, Oh, 
Oh my yeah. goodness. It really does have an effect. So yes, it's, I can absolutely, as you say, sympathize that there's so much, it's difficult enough to sort out what we should be eating, you know, from all, from all the information. So it's really, really difficult for dog owners to sort out really what, what should their dog be eating? So what do you think? What, what's the approach we should be taking with our dogs? Yeah, so for, for my money, and my experience is colored by the four years of work that I put into this book about a single topic, mm-hmm. but it's also colored by the fact that after publishing the book, I founded a pet food company of my own. So let, let your listeners not be um, misled about the fact that um, where my allegiances lie here. Mm-hmm. But for my money, the, um, the best decision that a pet owner can make when it comes to choosing a food for their dog is to look at the really simple issue of the amount of carbohydrate that is in the product. It's my belief, as is explained uh, in detail and exacting and probably overdone detail in my book, that there's a really persuasive body of scientific evidence which shows that calorie for calorie, carbohydrate is far more fattening for dogs and cats than calories of other um, macronutrients. So if you um, effectively, what these studies show is that if you are feeding a dog a, um, a certain number, a fixed number of calories, and then you switch its diet and you start feeding it the exact same number of calories, but more protein and less carbohydrate, the body condition of the animal changes dramatically. And um, so it's my belief because obesity is such an important issue for me um, that effectively reducing carbohydrate as much as possible is the most important conceptual issue for a pet owner. For As far as how to do that, what type of food to select, um, those will, in my eyes, in my experience, that's kind of shaped by the um, the pet owner's living conditions and what are some of the other important real-life issues that they face. What is, what does their budget look like? What is their tolerance for preparation? How convenient do they need their food to be? Um, things like that. And, you know, basically, in my eyes, where what the, the primary distinction is, are we going to find a kibble product, you know, a scoop and serve dried kibble product that's as low carbohydrate as we can find? Or are we going to choose a some form of a raw ingredient product, a frozen or a freeze dried product that's going to have in all likelihood very, very little carbohydrate, but is going to be a expensive and be um, difficult to prepare and serve uh, safely. You know, they, these are raw meat products that, that feature all kinds of uh, the possibility of bacterial pathogens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know you you were so moved, as you say, after the four years of, of research you did for your book, you were so moved my, by that, that you started your own company. So tell me about that. Yeah, sure. So basically, the main thesis of my book is that carbohydrate is the fundamental cause of the obesity epidemic among dogs, and that there's compelling evidence suggesting that not only is it the fundamental cause of obesity, but that it's really got a role to play in basically all the kind of chronic disease epidemics that we see among dogs, cats, and humans, and no other species um, currently walking the planet. And so for my money, that became the most important thing I wanted to do for my, my dogs. But Julie, like I told you earlier, I've got two dogs. One's a Rottweiler, a big male Rottweiler, and one is an even bigger adult male St. Bernard. So I've got a lot of dog, a lot of dog in my house. (laughs) And, um, 
they're not, uh, you know, they, they consume, they need to consume a lot of food. And so I was faced with that same decision that I was trying to articulate a, a minute ago. It's like, I can either feed the lowest carb kibble I can find, or I can go for a, a raw diet and effectively get rid of the carbohydrate altogether. The problem is that neither of those is a great option. You know, if you go, if you go to the pet store and you try to find the lowest carbohydrate kibble you're, you can find, you're, you're basically going to buy a product that's like 30% carbohydrate. It, typically, in my uh, experience, the best you're able to do, the most meat-infused kind of kibble product you could find circa three years ago was about 30% carbohydrate. These are these, you know, highly grain-free products that are advertised with a wolf on the bag and an ear of corn with a big red X over it and all that kind of stuff. Still 30% carbohydrate. Or you could choose a raw raw product, but for me with, you know, 250 pounds of dog in my home, that's a non-starter. They're so expensive that it's just not feasible on our budget. You know, there's so much more on a per calorie basis than kibble that we just couldn't afford it. So what I set out to do is to try to make um, a pet food product for people like me who wanted to feed as little carbohydrate as possible, but couldn't do it in a raw form. And so we basically spent about a year and a half working with veterinarians, pet food formulators, and basically one of the best pet food manufacturing outfits in the United States to come up with a truly low carbohydrate kibble product. And um, that's ultimately what we were able to do and what, what we do every day at um, my company, which is called Keto Natural Pet Foods. Our flagship product is called Ketona, and it's basically a, um, a kibble-style product with the carbohydrate content of a typical raw diet. It's, it's a truly first-of-its-kind product. It's got 80% less carbs than our leading competitors, and um, it's basically about 5% carbohydrate. And, um, yeah, we say it's just as convenient as any other kibble you're going to find. We sell it in bagged form and, uh, we think we're changing the world. <laughs> yes, you are dog by dog. <laughs> um, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I do, I, I have so much admiration for people who, who like you see something, they've researched it, they found out that, the, you know, the truth about it, the science behind it, and then think, I need to do something about this because, you know, everyday things come up and you think, I want to do something about this. And, then I think, oh, I don't know what to do about it. And so it just goes, you know, gets swept under the carpet and, and I move on to the next thing. But people like you who actually say, I need to do something about this and then do it. I think that's brilliant. And that's the way the world turns. If we all do what our passion is, then the world turns. I love that. So I think, you know, you know kudos to you for actually doing that. That's brilliant. Um, have your own dogs, how, have they taken to the, the diet? Well, they've been eating it now for the past about, two and a half years. I've had my Rottweiler since he was just a puppy. Mm. And I kind of, as I explain in my book, I went through a period where it sounds like you've been through too, where he was young, when he was a young dog, a couple of years old, I kind of started understanding the, the significance of the obesity issue. Mm. And I looked at him and said, Oh my gosh, this dog is not as lean as it ought to be. And that was kind of what kicked off my whole interest in the topic. And, um, he's now, you know, he basically, what I started doing with him at that point when he was just a couple years old was trying to feed him the lowest carbohydrate kibble I could find at the time. And so that was like a, you know, a 30% carbohydrate product. He's now been on ketona for three years and knock on wood, he's uh chronic disease free. He's, uh, he's an 11 year old dog, but he has, he's not gray in any way. He doesn't suffer from the kinds of, um, 
benign or not benign growths, like kind of skin growths that, that are so common that you see on dogs in these days. Um, and he's, uh, an active, he's still, you know, for better or for worse, he's a Terminator. He is a serious, <laughs> serious dog still. So it's great to see. Yeah. St. Bernard is almost a better case study in it. Um, when we, we adopted him from another family who had to give him up after he was an adult, we didn't really pry into why, but basically when he was five years old, his family had to get rid of him and they didn't, they, they you know, they were emotionally very attached to him. It was not saying they felt they wanted to do really, but they had to do it for one reason or another. We wanted a St. Bernard and we decided to adopt him. And when we adopted him, he, um, you know, I had already written a book about the problem of obesity in dogs. Like I was pretty sensitive to that topic. I knew a lot about it. And so I could tell from looking right at him that this dog is, um, if you, if you're to, you know, look at what should be considered scientifically ideal, this is an overweight dog. You could see it in the waistline. And when it's a breed as large as a St. Bernard, it's really quite striking. Mm-hmm. But I mean, his, his owners just didn't have the same kind of experience that I have to notice it. I have no doubt that they were doing nothing but what they thought was best for the animal. But he was pretty fat, is bottom line. He mm-hmm. was about 165 pounds when we brought him home. And then the only, and I, you know, my, my hand before God, the only change that we made in his life it, as a part of trying to reduce his um, waistline is we put him onto ketona. This was after the business had already begun operating. And of course, I'm not going to feed my dogs anything that I'm going to, that I wouldn't, I'm not going to sell anything to the public that wouldn't feed to my own dogs. Mm-hmm. And so we just put him on ketona and that's it. And, uh, basically over a period of five or six months, the animal lost 40 pounds and it's entirely, entirely, I mean, like I, you know, if I had a before and after photo, I could transmit to you right here. You can see it. It's entirely body fat. He is the most, you know, I've got a Rottweiler. He's very muscular. This St. Bernard is the most muscular dog I've ever seen in my life. And he's just built like a tank now. He just looked <laughs> amazing. Like I was telling you before he started the call, he moves like a small terrier or a small herding dog. He can just go like up and down, up and down, jump and like spin really quickly. But he's just massive. And so it's incredible. And so basically long and short of it is, yeah, they've had a really positive experience. He lost, you know, a third of his body weight exclusively fat um, just by eating a basically low-carb diet. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And what sort of feedback have you had from people, you know, other people who've fed their dogs um, ketona? Yeah, sure. So we have one of the places that you can purchase the product is through Amazon. Um, And Amazon, as you know, has like a a really robust customer rating and review system. Right now, if you go on Amazon.com and you sort there, if you tell Amazon, show me all your dry dog food products, and you tell them to sort the, the, the responses by the average customer review, they let customers review one to five stars, and it forms an average. We have literally the top rated dog food out of more than 5,000 products. Mm-hmm. The reviews, I'd encourage everyone to take a look at them. The reviews are exemplary, and I think it's unique. One thing that's kind of cool about our customers is our whole you know, I wrote a book about the science of dog food, and it's my belief that a lot of that science hasn't found its way out into the pet owning public as much as it ought to, as it deserves to have. And so a big part of what we do is trying to educate um, pet owners and our consumers about this research and the fact that it exists. And you can see it. You can read the studies for yourself. It's just the fact that they're not kind of published more. Um, 
And so what we see is we a lot of our customers use the product in terms of like handling, managing diseases like diabetes, cancer, and obesity. And you can read all about their experiences in the reviews and you can see for yourself just how positive they are because it's um it's really something to see um yeah. and it put it, it's con- you know confirmatory that we're on to something yeah yeah now you were telling me earlier it, it, your ketone isn't available in the uk do you have any plans to bring it to the uk or you, you know are we yeah. just going to keep our fingers crossed for a bit yeah i think that that's basically what you, what you need to do at the moment we're uh, we've been operating since 2017 we have grand ambitions, but they take time to mm-hmm. realize. And so it will be um, – I, I don't have an, an upcoming date, so I, I'm, unfortunately I, I can't tell you when it's going to be available. But I, um, I will – I have no intention of stopping doing what we're doing <laughs> until we've – you know, you, were tell, you, you mentioned before how you, um, how you feel admiration for people who um, have a kind of who are willing to take the plunge in entrepreneurial things and take go out on a risk pursuing something that they love and I heard that and it sounds great and I know there are people that are like that but but the the less you know the less sexy truth is that's not entirely what my story is <laughs> I honestly what what drives me on a daily basis um, and motivates what we do at the company is that I think there are some really bad actors in the pet food space. I think that the pet food industry has some has a really rotten side to it. Hmm. And that basically there are folks, there are firms and they're kind of they exist as in part, part in the veterinary community and part in the government regulation um, that are doing some really ugly things and it's having a really negative profound impact on pets. And I think it's really unfair and it's really gross. And I'm good at getting to the root of those kind of problems and ferreting them out and pointing them out and kind of shedding light on the truth. And so I feel really motivated in that way. I think it's a really unfair, gross situation. And for some reason, I feel a emotional compulsion to do something about it. So it's like I, the net result is ending up in my eyes helping dogs. And so it's all well yeah. and good. But really, it's about these people shouldn't get away with this. And I want to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think again, you've hit the nail on the head there. That on the head that you know, when people, whatever you know, line of, of work they are in with the dogs or in the world, but let's stick to dogs for now. Um, you know, if they if they're motivated by passion and the love of dogs and wanting to make life better for dogs, and, you know, whatever it is, and I'm and including that, you know, the, the food for dogs or breeding dogs or you know whatever. It's when the motivation is for money that things start to get a bit skewed and we lose sight of what's, you know, what's best for the dogs. So wh- why, you know, why aren't we, and I would say, you know, we, for, for, for humans, our doctors aren't necessarily feeding through this information we need as quickly as, as possible about carbs. It's all taking a, a bit of a, a long, too long to come through. Why isn't, why isn't it coming through in the dog world though? Why aren't we getting this advice? That's a, 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 an extremely important question. And the answer is basically, in my eyes, and as explained in you know, great detail in the book, is that the um, there are some really the, the basically the most powerful forces in the veterinary community are a small cluster of multinational pet food companies. All of the money in the veterinary research community comes out of these companies. They literally own the research labs that produce the vast majority of the veterinary nutrition research. They literally teach 
the veterinary nutrition courses at every one of the 28 American Veterinary Medical Association accredited veterinary schools. They literally, and this is not an exaggeration, they literally write the textbooks. So if you take the most popular um, veterinary nutrition textbook being used in vet schools today and you flip it over to the back cover, there's a big logo for the company Hills Pet Nutrition that says compliments of Hills. And those are just a few examples of just how serious an influence this handful of multi-billion dollar companies play in shaping what the veterinary community understands about nutrition. And all of those companies, in addition to their kind of influential role, they share one thing in common. And that's that dietary carbohydrate is the backbone of the product they make. If you, um, you know, when I try to describe how to make kibble, the layperson, I basically describe it as baking meaty bread. It's like basically a baking process. You mix a bunch of dough together. In the case of kibble, you put meat ingredients in there too. Um, and then you heat it up and those dough ingredients um, kind of gelatinize. They melt together. And then when you draw it, dry it out, they end up holding together. And so you're basically baking bread. And as anybody who's ever baked a loaf of bread knows, you need to use flour or some kind of starch, or else the dough doesn't want to hold together when you bake it. It falls apart. And um, the starch, yeah, basically, it gets subjected to a kind of chemical change when you heat it up above 250 degrees, and it all uh, gelatinizes, and it holds the dough together, and it's really functionally useful. So 50 or 60 years ago, when pet food companies started making kibble-style extruded pet food, that's exactly what they did. They put starch in the uh, in the dough because they needed to do it in order to get the, the kibbles to hold together when they bake it and they heat it up. And it was a really thoughtful technological innovation. You know, it allowed them to make your starch ingredients like flour and cornmeal and rice powder. They're all really inexpensive. And it allowed them to make products that were um, that would, you know, sustain an animal, could keep the animal alive um, at a really inexpensive uh, cost. And in a way that's shelf stable and um, it was really convenient for pet owners. And it's just a brilliant – if you're looking at it from the perspective of 50, 60 years ago, it's a brilliant technological breakthrough. The problem is that subsequent to that, we came to learn that carbohydrate does all these nasty things to the animal's body. And at that point, these companies were massive already. They already existed and their entire livelihood, their entire product line is based around making products that are 50 or 60% carbohydrate. And it is a completely existential threat to their existence if, they, if, the, if the pet owning public um, comes to believe that carbohydrate is the enemy. If, they, if the pet owning public believes that, they will literally go out of business. And so that's one of the ish topics that, uh, which they'll most you know, energetically fight back. And so in all the venues that I just explained to you, the like the veterinary research institutions in the textbooks, in the course materials that are being used to teach veterinarians, in the continuing education programs that veterinarians are forced to go to, all those places, this message is hammered home time and time and time again. Carbohydrate is perfectly healthy for animals. These are the best kind of products for these animals. And so if you speak to a, you, you know, your, your neighborhood veterinarian, they're very likely to have been subjected to that. Um, and that, to my eyes, is the most um, – that's the, the, the big story that underlies why so many veterinarians don't think that.
Yeah, yeah. Which again is is horrific because if we're not getting the truth, even from vets who want to tell us the truth, you know, if they've already been indoctrinated um, with the wrong message, you know, that's really sad because even the ones who are trying to do the best for us, they're not doing it, are they? That's really sad. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is sad. You know, it's, these are people who have devoted their lives to mm-hmm. helping animals yeah. and they obviously care about them a lot. Um, I will, you know, I go around, I do a lot of speaking about the, this topic and, um, I avail myself of public debate whenever I possibly can. And I get lots of veterinarians who push back against what I'm saying on the basis that I myself am not a veterinarian and it's completely fair perspective to have. But in all my years of doing this, I've never had one person argue the substance of what I'm arguing, the, the fact that these studies exist, what the studies show. And again, it's been done time and time again. This is not an outlier, some weird one random study that I dug up. We're talking about half dozen or more times the same experiment's been done. It's as clear as day. It's just not being <laughs> reported in the nutrition textbooks. It's as simple as that. And so, you know, I face lots of pushback from veterinarians because they don't want to believe totally fairly. They don't want to believe that they've basically had the wool pulled over their eyes by some pretty nasty companies that they've put their faith in. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think the answer, and it comes back to this time after time, do you think the answer is for owners to arm themselves with knowledge, look look into it themselves, do some research and then make an informed choice. Julie, I do think that at a conceptual level, that is the answer. Unfortunately, we live in the most difficult mm-hmm. information era that's ever existed. The times when you could, you know, there, there used to be a time when you could say, I want to understand some esoteric random issue. And the way I'm going to learn about it is I'm going to go out and find the expert who spent their whole life working on this issue and ask them. And they're going to tell me. And that was really efficient and really smart. Now that is just no longer, like you said, that's not a feasible strategy anymore. Your likelihood of of getting misinformation is just too high. And so you've effectively got to make yourself a specialist in any issue that's really critically important to you. The odds that if you just go talk to your local expert, whatever it is about pet nutrition or, you know, peanut butter, you're too likely to run into somebody who's been corrupted by some kind of financial conflict of interest or something else. And you're not likely to become an expert for yourself uh, to get truthful information. So you've got to go learn it for yourself. It's just a difficult it's a difficult environment to operate in. And it's um, yeah, all the yeah. So basically, yes, I agree with you that that is the best. um, Unfortunately, that's the best strategy that that's available to consumers at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's a good trick if you can do it kind of thing. Yes, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Now we have we have another big issue to confront, and we've confronted some big issues today. And thank you for for sort of taking them head on. So let's let's go to another big issue that I know you want to talk about, which is, and I hope I'm going to say this right, but dilated cardiomyopathy. That's right. Right. So, okay. So tell me about that then. So let's first of all let's just call it DCM, the acronym DCM. That's kind of how it's commonly discussed when when folks stateside are looking at it. Um, To give your listeners a little bit of background, in the United States, the issue of do certain pet foods contribute to the development of this this heart disease, DCM, 
do they or do they not do that, has become a major national news item. It's transcended the pet food community, and it gets coverage now in papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, the most, the, the largest and most venerable papers in the United States. And um, it's kind of an astounding thing because this disease is a really, really rare one. Uh, you know, unlike obesity or something like that, where the majority of dogs in the United States suffer from it, this is something that typically affects the best data that we've got says it affects something on the scale of like 1,000 out of the 77 million dogs that um, uh, currently live in the United States every year. So you're talking about the likelihood of being struck by lightning is like the likelihood that your dog is could potentially develop PCM. Nevertheless, the issue has become this huge, massive, very, very interested, um, you know, magnetic issue in the public eye. And um, effectively, the, the way that you'll see stories reported um, is there's a, a concern among some veterinarians, as expressed through our Food and Drug Administration, that um, so-called grain-free pet foods um, cause dilated cardiomyopathy. And um, grain-free pet foods... Um, represents something like 40% of the pet food market. So again, you're talking about um, something that is, uh, you know, you've got something on the order of 30, 40 million dogs and cats in the United States are eating these products. And, you you know, as a, as a result, pet owners who are feeding them are very, very worried in many instances. Am I going to give my dog this heart disease um, because of the food I'm feeding it. And so it's this is a real-time live issue. The New York Times covered this issue as recently as a week ago. And um, I, as the owner of a pet food company, field all manner of questions from, from worried customers all the time. Is this something I need to be worried about with my dog? And it's just fascinating. I thought it would be really interesting to talk to you about it because just to hear what the perspective on this issue is um, in Europe, because it's my understanding that it's it's much less of a issue of public concern. Yes, yes, it's, it just doesn't really come up. I mean, I have I'm a, I've seen the term and and I have heard it mentioned, but it's just not that big big a deal over here. It's quite interesting to hear that it is such a big concern over there. Yeah, it is, and it's um, I think that that's telling. Honestly, mm. you know, there's not a whole lot that is different about how pets are fed in Western Europe compared to how pets are fed in the United States. Um, so if you have, you know, these same, the same environment and, and, and yet you're being asked to believe that there's a really, really different outcome that all these pets are experiencing this epidemic of DCM in the United States, but it's not something at all in Europe that, um, ought to strike. I, I believe it ought to strike you as, um, that ought to catch your attention, that ought to, mm. that, that's an explanation. Um, and so if you, if your listeners can't tell based on my tone, um, I'm a very, um, I'm a proud skeptic of this issue and I've spent the, the, I'm trying to juggle a few different things professionally and run my business, but I've spent a great deal of effort over the past five months conducting an independent investigation into the cultural and kind of, um, the, the forces that have come together to turn DCM into such a, um, a popular uh, issue of concern in, in the Western world. And the long and short of it 
goes, you know, it would it would be far beyond the s- scope of what we could talk about on this call to dive down into the science specifically and look at all the bad studies and look at the places where the conflicts of interest have played into it um, and otherwise. But the long and short of it is I've basically prepared this um, this 45 page brief of materials in which I'm demanding that the leading academic journal in the uh, veterinary academic journal in the United States retract the key article that kind of set off this whole firestorm in the first place. Back in December of this year, they published an article basically explaining in the, the views of these uh, these scientists the causes of DCM and why pet owners should be so worried about it. It's my belief, after having uh, conducted all manner of investigation relating into it, interviewing everyone and doing biochemical research, that it's all a load of um, – garbage <laughs> that these people had financial conflicts of interest that they are pursuing in putting the article out that it's not really an issue um, that pet owners should be worried about and that the article ought to be retracted um, i presented those findings to the lead scientist behind the uh, article at a convention about one month ago in phoenix arizona um, she offered no response and has not responded since then and the um the but i uh, d- disseminated copies of all this to everyone who was in attendance at the conference, and the uh, materials have now been co-signed and endorsed by over 200 other people. Um, basically, it's in my eyes, it's a clear case of scientific malfeasance. And if you're hearing this right now and you're worried about the issue of DCM in dogs, um, my perspective is that you should uh, take take a deep breath. And not worry. It's um, it's it's a uh, it's a real disease that real that dogs really do get sometimes. But the issues um, that have kind of been linked in the public have absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. As you're talking, I've just quickly looked on my phone um, for for DCM in the UK, and there is an article in the Telegraph. But all the information is coming from the US FDA. They constantly refer to the US Food and Drug Administration findings um, about DCM. So it is it is something to spread out that's spreading to the UK. So I guess wherever you live in the world, um, just be aware that this is inf- information or misinformation or whatever you want to sort of however you want to look at it. That is spreading and growing. So it is something you need to look into and and. Just be aware, you know, again, with everything, don't have the wall pulled over your eyes. Look into it. You can form your own opinion, but just be armed with the, the knowledge and the need to know that, you know, is it the truth that's coming out? So, gosh, that's really worrying, isn't it, Daniel? Uh, it is to me. I mean, it's I, I could imagine being a listener who feels very skeptical right now. Someone who hears my voice and says, well, this guy's He's got an agenda, too. And I do. I have a financial conflict of interest in this. You know, I own a pet food company. There's no denying it. Um, but what I've done is I show all my work. And mm. so if your listeners go to this website that I've created, it's veterinaryintegrity.org. You can read all the stuff that I've done on this topic. It's about 40 pages of materials. It involves original scientific work. It involves you can basically see the, the, the explanation and judge for yourself. Um, and th- you know, that's, that's basically the best that you can do for, yes. in my eyes, what you can do for pet owners at this point. Yeah. Don't, don't believe me cause I'm saying it, but take a look at what's actually been done. And I think you'll be persuaded. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we, as you say, we live in a very strange age of fake news and, and debunking yeah. of experts and, you know, science and, and it's, it is a crazy world. But yes, go and look at the, the proper science behind things. And then at least you'll know, you know, you, you're making an informed, an informed decision based on truth, not just opinion and, and social media rumors and hashtags. Um, it's, it's a crazy world. Um, thank you ever so much for that. We will put any links. We'll put that to veter- veterinary in, say it again, v- veterinary. Um, yeah, I'll send you the link, veterinaryintegrity.org. Thank you. Thank you. I wrote or, it down in, in note form and couldn't read my own notes. <laughs> That's what happened there. Okay. Are there any other links that you, you want included, Daniel? Oh, sure. Yeah. If you could, you know, my, my book, you can find my book is entitled Dogs dog food and dogma and you can find it on all the leading online booksellers and um, if you'd like to learn more about keto natural pet foods which is the company that i founded a couple of years ago um, our website is uh, k-e-t-o keto natural pet foods.com smashing that's great what what sort of um because obviously there's a lot that we haven't had time to discuss as you say we could stay on, stay on for all day but is there anything else that you'd like to say to people that we haven't had time or is there sort of a, a message that you'd like to recap and leave them with? Yeah. Just don't blame yourself about matters of obesity or disease. It's like, it's a, in my eyes, the tragedy of the, the, the type, the, the expected lifespan of pets in the Western world is really under, um, uh, appreciated by the, you know, it's like that you, you feel bonded to these animals Basically, as in my experience, because you're the, the, the stuff that keeps you bound to your children is being kind of repurposed and hijacked, right? Yes, you love them yeah. in a very literal sense, just like you love your children. And the, um, the, the you know, the, the biggest tragedy that exists in the world is when a parent, um, uh, when a child dies before its parent, it's just, it's mm-hmm. unfathomable. It's as, as big a tragedy as we can think of. And yet that's precisely the situation that every pet owner in the Western world, you know, every pet owner has to is expected to go through. We all know that these animals are going to live much shorter lives than we are. And so it induces a profound feeling of guilt in some instances. And you want to believe you can do more. I just I've spent so much time sifting through this this industry and the scientific community. And it's just difficult. Don't blame yourself about any kind of bad outcome. All your dog would ask if it could, I think, if your dog could put words, uh, put to words what it wants out of you as an owner, it's just to do the best that you can, to make the best decisions that you can. Your dog's got a big heart, but it's not always the brightest animal in the world. The best thing you could do is bring your bright little brain to bear on making good decisions for the animal. Learn, you know, try to be, do the best you can. And I think that's all they would ever ask of us. Yes, absolutely. That, that's a lovely way to put it. And thank you ever so much. That's been really informative and, and food for thought. And hopefully it will inspire people to, to go away and research more. It's certainly going to inspire me to do that. So thank you very much, Daniel. Yeah, sure. Of course, if you want to have any follow up at all, listeners, I'll, I'll give you, you know, you can reach me very easily over the Internet. I, uh, I welcome any kinds of discussion, questions, anything else. Figuring out what to feed your dog is one of the most difficult decisions, isn't it? I do believe that the only way to approach it is to listen to what the experts have to say, look into the research and then see what works for your dog. Thanks to Daniel for giving us so much to think about there. We have a link to the Keto website on the Dogcast Radio site. 
All his life he tried to be a good person. Many times, however, he failed. For after all, he was only human. He wasn't a dog. Charles M. Schultz. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News. You know the saying, love me, love my dog. I do. No, I know you do. No, no, I mean, I do love you and your dog. Well, that's sweet, thank you. A recent... And you? And me? And you and your dog? Me and my dog? It is polite to say it back. Oh, me and my dog love you too. But a recent survey shows that when it comes to romantic love, for at least 8 out of 10 people, it's a case of love me, love my dog. Yes, the survey conducted by the dog walking company WAG found that a dog's reaction to a potential partner affects the dog's owner's attitude to the relationship. Furthermore, a surprising 86% of those surveyed said that they'd dump a partner who didn't take to their dog because that mattered more than whether their partner wanted kids or not, was a bad tipper or had bad fashion sense. Is that a surprise to you? Or have you, in fact, prioritised your dog over a partner? One woman who prioritises her dogs is Mackenzie McIntosh, who has a large doggy family of nine Newfoundlands. And they have a large Instagram account with 50,000 followers on their new crew feed. Mackenzie is often asked questions such as, Is that a bear? How big is your house? And are you crazy? The Newf crew live in Pennsylvania, USA, and Mackenzie has loved Newfies as long as she can remember, having grown up with one who was just a year older than her. Mackenzie actually bred three of her dogs, and she fully acknowledges the serious demanding nature of breeding dogs, which is not something she undertook lightly. As her brood grew, she set up the Instagram account as she was eager to share the photos she took of her dogs with those who would appreciate them. In 2016, Mackenzie's mom, Deirdre, decided to start a therapy programme with the dogs. And although sadly, Deirdre was diagnosed with cancer later that year and passed away in 2018, Mackenzie and her mum attended training classes together with the dogs and now the training continues and Mackenzie is determined to include the Newfs in her work with children as a speech-language pathologist. We have a link to the Newf Crew's Instagram on the Dogcast Radio website. But anyone taking on a Newfoundland should bear in mind that they weigh between 100 and 145 pounds. They eat about 70 pounds of dog food per week, shed heavily and drool significantly. But they have big hearts, as did everyone who pulled together online to reunite a homeless man and his dog. When Stephen had his blue staffy Jess stolen in Liverpool, UK, Homeless Dogs Support Organisation Care for the Poor launched the online appeal to get Jess back. The online community rose to the occasion and shared the appeal so enthusiastically that Jess was found later that day. Actor and comedian Rufus Hand was amongst those sharing the news on Twitter and apparently both Stephen and Jess were delighted to be back together. Nice to see the internet used for such a great purpose. If, like me, you're hoping to welcome a new dog into your family in 2020, you're probably already thinking about names. But whether you want to make sure you're in with the in-crowd... Or if you want to avoid popular choices, here are the predicted top 10 dog names for next year. At number 10, it's Maggie. At number 9, it's Millie. In at number 8, with a Disney influence, it's Lady. More Disney at number 7, it's Simba. Loki is at number 6. And Bella is number 5. At number 4, it's Elsa. Harley is third. Runner-up is Luke. And taking the top spot is Charlie. Whatever your dog is called... Simply by being in your life, they are lowering your risk of dying by 24%. What? Dog owners become immortal? 
No, well, I don't think so. But Canadian research reveals that dog ownership is associated with a 24% reduction in all-cause mortality. For anyone who's already suffered a heart attack or stroke, having a dog gave them a 31% reduced risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. Similar Swedish research showed that dog owners had better health outcomes after suffering a major cardiovascular event, such as heart attack or stroke. And intriguingly, the benefit was highest for dog owners who lived alone. Dog-owning heart attack survivors living alone had a 33% lower risk of dying compared to people who did not own a dog. Dog-owning stroke survivors living alone had a 27% reduced risk of death. The underlying cause might be because petting a dog reduces your blood pressure, or because having a dog makes you less likely to have depression. But whatever it is, dogs help us live longer, better lives. Now onto a dog in Leeds, UK, who helped another dog to live a better life. Dachshund Alf found himself in rescue due to his agoraphobia, which caused him to be nervous outside the house and to bark at strangers. Alf was adopted by Barry Groves, who already had a three-year-old Dachshund called Gus. Alf and Gus became great friends, to the extent that the bond between them has given Alf the confidence to venture out of the house. Alf now plays in the garden and walks along the road, always keeping an eye on Gus. Heavy traffic can still worry Alf, but with his new friend beside him, he's enjoying life. The Red Foundation, a charity dedicated to rescuing Dachshunds, have rehomed over 120 Daxes this year, including Alf. Anyone looking to share their life with a Dachshund should remember that although they're little and cute, oh, a bit like you, Jenny, ah, they have definite opinions of their own. Again, a bit like you, Jen. That's it for now. See you next time. Right, come here, little and cute, am I? Actually... My dog, I think, is the only person who consistently loves me all the time. H.G. Bissinger I've seen Heather Smith dancing with her dogs, and I've picked her brains for many articles and interviews. She's got a lot of experience with and wisdom about dogs to share. Heather has competed, judged and trained in a number of doggy disciplines around the world, and today... She's talking to me about disc dogs and accessibility. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Really nice to speak to you. Good, and you. It's always, always good to speak to you. We're going to talk today about disc dogs and accessibility. So it's going to be really interesting, and I think it's a great subject to talk about. But first of all, I've never done disc dogs. For anybody else that hasn't done disc dogs, what is disc dogs? It's not actually dogs who are DJs, is it? No, <laughs> although that would be fun, it would, wouldn't it? especially with my background in Hillworth Music. Yeah. <laughs> um, Disc Dogs is quite new in the UK, and so we have the UK Disc Dog Association here in the UK, and they have three classifications of sport, if you like. So a bit like they have jumping and agility and agility. Mm-hmm. Um, in Disc Dog, we have three kinds of activity in the UK. We have uh, throw disc, which is a variant, so it's very much like toss and fetch and the World Series um, UFO throw and catch. So it's basically how far can you throw along around about 50 yards um, mm-hmm. and how many discs can the dog catch and return to you. 
So there are three variations of that. And, um, it's very straightforward. It's very accessible for everybody and everybody's dog. Mm-hmm. Um, all the dog has to do is learn how to catch. And I've had all breeds that learn how to catch in classes. Then we have jump disc, which for those who love agility is probably right up your street. Um, and jump disc involves three obstacles, which can be a combination of jumps and tunnels or either. You could have three tunnels and three jumps, or you can have a combination. And the dog has to do that three uh, um, obstacle sequence before you can throw your disc, and the dog must catch for that to count. So that's done within 90 seconds, and it's how many sequences and catches can you get. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really good because it gets the dogs a little bit more active and running and jumping, which leads very nicely on to free disc, which is also known as freestyle in America and Europe. And it is the one that I love very much because it's uh, like dancing with discs. Mm -hmm. So it's really disco (laughs) and it incorporates all the tricks you'll see in sports like you'll watch music. Um, alongside the creativity that you can come up with to throw your discs in different ways and different patterns. So it's very like a dance, but the dog has the motivation of catching discs. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. That sounds great. Yeah, and there's, there's something in there for everybody, isn't there? Whatever your preferences are and whatever your dog's yeah. preferences are. Absolutely, and it, it kind of builds... You know, you can start very simple with throw disc and you can work up to more skills in, in free disc. Yeah, yeah. Now, my one of my problems would be I'm not terribly good at throwing a frisbee. <laughs> how, how do you get around that? <laughs> uh, well, there's a variety of ways of getting around that because I couldn't throw at all two years ago. Hmm. I couldn't throw in a straight line. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we've learned to throw. We've got little um, exercises in class. For example, somebody standing uh, a distance away holding a hula hoop and can you not hit the person and throw the disc <laughs> through the hoop? Um, and there are other sports that feed into it. I'm about to try disc golf, hmm. um, which isn't so new, new in the UK, but I hadn't heard of it before. It's a sport without a dog and it literally is golf with discs. Yes. There's, there's, I've seen, do you know, I've seen that in Aberystwyth on the coast. And um, oh. yeah, I think there's a course in, in Telford near us. So oh, there you go. Yeah, I, I need to go and have a, have a go. <laughs> uh, yes, that's like a, a sort of a, a pole with a, almost a great big basketball hoop, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's yeah. like a great big brazier and mm. you have to get your disc into it. Yeah. yeah. So I am looking forward to improving my distance throwing. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So you do, do you compete in disc dog? I, I ran um, a two-day show in Scotland this year oh, wow. with uh, World Cup qualifiers. Excellent. Uh, and managed to qualify my dog, which was very exciting, oh, wow. to go to the European and World Championships. So the Europeans are in Holland in October, but haven't quite decided whether I'm actually going to go. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Wow. I might go. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, so that was that was a busy time for you, running the show and competing. And, yes, it yeah. was. Wow. And it attracted a really big entry. I mean, we started judging at about half past nine and we finished about six o'clock. Wow. So we had a really big entry and a lot of sponsorship and interest, yeah. which augurs well for this dog growing in Scotland. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And, and 
have your dogs taken to? Because I know your dogs do lots of sports and they have lots of mental uh, stimulation, you know, um, and yeah. you have a great partnership with all of them. But how have uh, they taken to it? Well, I have. Obviously, I have six dogs. Mm. So I do. I started doing it really for Google. She's one of my um, younger ones. She's four and a bearded collie. And she, we used to call her Sober Sides because she was very serious about everything. She's mm. the only beauty I've ever had who's been serious. Uh-huh. They're all usually clowns. So I started doing it with her to bring a bit of joy to her training. Yeah. And she absolutely loves it. And it's really provided great motivation for other sports like obedience and he'll work to music. Um, and she's, she glows now when she works. She just loves this. <laughs> and I also do it with my little Bichon. Um, so she won the small dog freestyle at the show. She's, uh, I've had trouble getting it small enough for her. She's yes. got a really small mouth. But we finally found one uh, that she can catch. And, I mean, she just loves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it gets her all excited. And I started doing it with a puppy. But, of course, she really should be careful with pups. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a year old on Sunday. I can hardly believe it. Um, <laughs> it flies, And it? I haven't really thrown any discs for him other than little rollers um, because I want him to be properly developed, really, before he starts running around after discs. Yes. Uh, but he has super takes. I have um, I have expectations that you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, but I mean, it is. So it is. I guess there's the there's the chase. There's, 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 they've got to be in the right place, haven't they, to catch the disc? Yeah. Um, and then yeah, they have. Mm. Yeah, you teach them to track the disc. So that's really very simple. You can teach a small puppy to do that. Mm. Um, so you teach them to get excited about the disc. They can play tuggy. And lots of people um, give dogs a lot of food or tidbits. I've seen people in America using their disc as a food bowl <laughs> to get the dog a high-value association with the disc. Yeah. Uh, so you can do that. You can do tuggy on little soft discs, even with a young dog. Um, so I have like uh, stretchy discs, for want of a better description, mm. which are very soft on a dog's mouth. And then you teach them to take the disc so they're actually looking for it coming above their head and you're moving it away from them. And they learn to kind of not quite run after it because they're not going far, but take it, hence I take, mm. while it's slightly moving. So they're learning then to look for and track the disc. So when you throw it, they look for it, they track it, and they catch it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. So it's not just a case of you stand there and chuck the frisbee and the, <laughs> the dog just goes, oh, all right, I caught it or I didn't. This is a proper sport and there is training. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a lady start class on uh, Wednesday night and, and she said just that. She said, you know, I've thrown frisbees lots for my dogs. But I never realized why they missed so many. <laughs> um, but very quickly, her collie was tracking and catching. Yeah, uh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. I mean, the other the other problem I've had is uh, some some frisbees that we've had have been great for us throwing. Um, yeah. But they're not the kind of thing, you know, particularly if it was going fast, then they would quite pack a wallop on a dog's head and sort yeah. of could be too sharp for their mouth. So what kind of frisbees do we need to be looking for? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what you use is really important. I've already said that for young dogs and new dogs, it's really good to have very soft discs. Mm. Am I allowed to do a bit of advertising? Yes, of course. Nobody sponsors me. <laughs> so I use Czech Black, which I had to bring from the Czech Republic. And they're like, um, oh, I don't know what the material would be. They're very stretchy, but you can actually throw them a little. But they're so soft. 
Um, and then Chuck it do a very nice one. But again, I've had to bring it from America. I don't know if there's many of them here. I haven't seen them in shops here. Mm. Um, and again, they're soft. They've got a very soft surround and they throw okay. Um, but these discs are extremely soft. The only um, other proviso I would say is no disc should have a hole in the middle. Mm. Um, and that's just for safety because you don't want the disc getting stuck on the dog's head yes. or a paw stuck in a disc. Um, so these soft discs are a really good place to start because the dog learns to what's called a bite. It learns to clamp down tight on them as it tugs. Mm. Um, and obviously most dogs, or most dogs I experience, really like something soft to do that with because it's easy to tug. Yes. Also from a human point of view, when you move on to the harder discs, which do fly further, um, they're much harder to hold and tug on. I've had a few sore fingers trying <laughs> it. Uh, so when you move on to the harder discs, you know, in class what I have, I've got, I've got a great big bucket of different kinds of discs. Mm. And I ask people what they're happy throwing because there's a little bit of it that's individual. Personally, I really like um, hyperflight discs. Mm-hmm. Um, they throw really well and they do a, a, a variant called hyperflight jaws. And it's quite soft but hard and I can throw that quite a distance. Um, and the other company that are very good are Hero, and I have a few Hero discs that I also throw. The other brands are available, and I have people come to class with various brands that they swear are the best discs ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're my favourites. Mm. So, yeah. And again, the slightly heavier the disc, the longer you'll throw it. But then that's important for things like jump disc, and it's important for throw disc. But when it comes to freestyle, sometimes the lighter discs can allow you to twirl them in the air or spin them on your finger or do something a little bit more technical with your throw-in. Yeah. I just want to go and watch lots of... Well, I assume... Have you got videos online of your... Uh, There are some videos online and there should be lots of photos and videos from the show. Yeah, yeah. I just want to go and watch now and see sort of... Because I can imagine you, you are so creative and I can, I just, you, you must, particularly the free disc, I can just imagine it being spectacular. But when it's a competition then, Heather, uh-huh. do you have to have, is there a specific kind or, or brand of disc that you have to use for each, um, activity? Or is it, you know, it, it's, it's still up to you and the dog? It's pretty much up to you. Again, you shouldn't have ones with holes in the middle. That's the big thing. Mm. Um, there is a list, I believe, from UK Disc Dog, which suggests um, discs, but it's not exclusive. Um, there are so many discs on the market. Mm. And again, I have uh, one lady with a beardy who I think they're called flippy floppies, and they're very soft, and she can throw them a long way, and mm. her dog is super at catching them. Um but they're not on the list, but I know she used them at the show and they're very safe. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, I mean, it, again, it's, um, you've got the exercise, the, the, the physical exercise aspect for the dog, but you've also got yeah. the mental aspect. I mean, cause it's not just yeah. pointless running. They are, they're having to think about where they are. Yes, they are indeed. Mm. They are indeed. Um, it is quite, uh, a strenuous, things for the dog so for example with most of the throw disc uh, variants the toss and catches and so forth um, the dog only does one minute at a time Hmm. the really important thing is your dog's super warmed up 
And as with any warm-up, it's about getting the dog moving, increasing the pace of the movement, thinking about the kind of activities the dog's actually going to do when you throw. So round your body into a throw, little takes so the dog's slightly jumping off the ground to catch. And doing all of that before you start your one-minute throw. So, I mean, I can... uh, tell you that I probably do 20 minutes of warm-up for the one minute of throwing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's Because lovely. you really want to keep your dog sound safe and yes. you want it bonded and thinking. Um, but I know Google and she's young and very fit. She's exhausted after her 20-minute <laughs> warm-up and one minute throwing. Yeah. Oh. But I mean, oh. also, you want to do this. It's, it's an activity you and the dog enjoy. You want to be able to do it for as long as possible. So you want to... Yeah. You want them not to be injured by it, sort of thing. Absolutely, mm. yes. And injury is a is a concern with all sports. Mm. I mean, not solely this dog, and that would concern me with even obedience, which people I don't think particularly associate it with injury. But I mean, some of the activities in obedience, such as heel work, are very repetitive. Mm. Um, so many injuries are born out of repetition. Um, so warm-up's important, whatever your sport, be it more sedentary like obedience or very active like agility and disc. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And because you, you teach disc dogs, um, mm-hmm. how, how do you find that in general, you know, because as, as I've said, your dogs are very um, lucky and they do a lot of activities with you, you know, they do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're bringing that experience with them. What about the people yeah. who come to the class and they maybe haven't done so many other activities? Do they still take to it? Yes. Um, yeah, I've got dogs who are just pet dogs, not just pet dogs. I should never say just pet dogs. No, I know what you mean, but... Almost. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but they, they don't do any other activities at all and they've seen DISC and have come along. I've had a lot of interest and in people come along from demos that I've done. Mm. Um, and then it, you know, goes to people who perhaps are a new lady, for example, to a fly ball. So people come from a variety of backgrounds and it's very accessible no matter what your experience. The skill set isn't huge. For example, you know, in dog dance, I think the skill set for freestyle is really big. Mm. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons it's not a very big sport. It's a small sport. Um, Whereas the skill set for this is is fairly straightforward, a little like agility, very accessible. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So you mentioned there it's accessible, but we're going to talk about accessibility. So so tell me about discogs with regard to accessibility. Yeah, I think um, if we start with, for example, toss and fetch, the handler doesn't actually have to move very much. You are in a start line. So, for example, I do have a lady attend classes who uses a wheelchair. Mm. And she's very, I mean, her dog is super, uh, does super catches. Um, She has upper body movement. So she finds it fairly easy to turn into a throw. But again, she's doing all that from sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. So it is very accessible. She also has um, dabbled in freestyle with the dog. Mm -hmm. um, And she manages very well. She doesn't move very much in terms of the chair. But the ring and the ring is big, but even though her dog's small, she manages to cover the ring with throws, which I know she also does heel work to music, which she finds more difficult doing that mm. because the dog's motivated to cover the ring by the disc, but yes. heel work to music, not so much. Mm. So I would say, um, particularly in her case, disc is far more accessible than heel work to music. 
And of course, she brings all the tricks from Heal Work to Music. The chair has uh, turned out to be quite a useful prop. Hmm. So we've used the chair, for example, to get the dog to go round about the wheels on front hmm. uh, in a little figure of eight. Aww. So <laughs> try to include her chair yeah. as uh, something she can use to develop the tricks for her freestyle. Yeah, that's a great idea. I bet that's really sweet to see. Yeah, she did so well. She did so well at the show. Uh, mm. And she's got two little rescue dogs, mm. kind of Jack Russell crosses. Uh, they're absolutely super. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but that, that's really good. And as you say, incorporated, it's not something you're sort of working against. You're working with it and you're, you're yes, embracing work it. With. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So any, anybody that does have mobility issues uh-huh. listening to this shouldn't think, oh, well, it's not for me. They should be thinking, well, maybe it is. Perhaps I can do it. Yeah. I think particularly throw, in, uh, throw disc and top and fetch, very, very accessible because you don't have to move off your start line. And um, she has done, uh, the lady in the chair, she has done some jump disc. And I would say the same is true with agility because obviously it's very agility based. If you can find a trainer that can teach your dog to send away. Um, so if the dog's capable of doing send away and go jump, then you're, you're going to find that's accessible even without particularly moving very much as well. Yes. So if your disability is movement based, you're going to find this dog pretty accessible mm-hmm. yeah excellent excellent i guess that the one thing that would perhaps stop you is if you actually couldn't throw the disc yes yes i guess uh, i think you probably would need to have some upper body movement mm. um yes you would definitely need to be able to throw the disc uh, we have had a lady with cerebral palsy on the course, mm. but she had on she had considerable assistance to throw the disc. But I know she really enjoyed it. Yeah. There were some super photographs taken of her joining Aww. in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. And as you say, it's, yeah. it's great fun for the dog. It gives them lots of stimulation. It's it's something different. Yeah. And and yeah, why not have a go? Absolutely. I mean, there are hidden disabilities too um, that uh, I, I, I guess require. I'm thinking of things like I've had people with Asperger's and autism in classes, mm. you know, which are not on the face of it something people see as a disability until you probably speak to the person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, I think teaching style is is what makes dog sports, not just this dog sports, but any dog sport, accessible for people who have. Um, a condition like that, or perhaps uh, a learning difficulty. Yeah. Um, it's all about very structured teaching. So most sports can be made accessible with the correct teaching. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that um, there are sort of like the APDT and various bodies that um, you can be allied to as a trainer. Mm-hmm. Do any of them take into account um, accessibility in any of the, the courses they do? Uh, no, I, that is a really good question to which I really don't have an answer. Um, no, okay. I just sorry. I, threw, I, I, threw I would that. like to think so because I mean, yeah. a reasonable adjustment. Yeah, a reasonable adjustment is something that in law, mm. you, you know, people should be um, taken into account when they have somebody with a disability in class. Um, yeah. I used to work uh, with people with learning difficulties, so it's something I feel quite passionate about that people should be included. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I um, recently uh, was a little bit uh, disappointed to hear, because I very much enjoy obedience, mm. and I think it could also be accessible. Uh, but recently, a wheelchair user at an obedience show was left to wheel her chair on sand, <gasps> um, oh. which was uh, not conducive to her no. dog working. You know, and a, a very simple adjustment, in my opinion, would have been to move um, her round to somewhere where her chair would yes. move easily. Yeah. You know, so I think most in most situations an adjustment can be moved, made yes. so that most people, almost all, can be included in any dog sport. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is a great feeling when you work with your dog as a team. And as you yeah. said, that's something all dog owners should have accessibility to. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes, and dogs are such a lifeline. Um, dogs can really be such a lifeline to people. I have a very close friend with Asperger's, mm. and I know her dog is so important to her. Mm. Um, and it is her lifeline. It helps her communicate out there in the real world. Yeah. Uh, so to be actually able to take your best friend, which is in what effect her dog is, and to be able to join in other activities is so important to her. And I'm sure it's important to anybody else yeah. um, with a disability or without. Yeah. Was, was there anything that we haven't had time yet to say about um, dis, you know, disc dogs and accessibility? Oh my goodness, do you know, it's probably <laughs> when I go off the phone, a million and one things will pop into my head. I can't think of anything else at the yeah. moment. Okay, okay. Yeah, it, it sounds great. And and the, the one thing we haven't said is, um, I think it's been apparent from the conversation, but sort of, it seems like any size, breed, shape, mix, yeah. whatever of dogs oh, yeah. can do this, can't they? Absolutely. Um, everything from, I think, I have seen a papillon do this dog. Yeah. Um, and anything from a papillon, I haven't seen anything smaller. My bichon, which isn't much bigger than a papillon. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen many big dogs, I have to say. Mm. Um, but there's no reason why not. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay, so the, we can find out more from um, Distogs, UK Distogs, um, dot, yeah. dot, um, dot UK, is it? or? It's this dog UK. Smashing. Okay, so we'll put that link on. And where can people find out more about you, Heather? Oh, on my website, mm-hmm. com. Smashing. And you have a very active um, online presence, don't you? Your Facebook. Yeah, I like, yes, I like posting photos yes. on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and you get some great ones of your dogs. They're lovely. <laughs> uh, they love posing. Yes. It's yeah. all part of training, you know. <laughs> no, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, somebody was saying to me, something, I can't remember who it was, but they get the, the camera out and their dog immediately poses. And then That's they put mine. the. Yeah. Yeah. Put the, put the phone or camera away and then the dog's, okay, off we go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then you go walk with them, and if they find something to put their feet on, they're going, well, look at me, you're going to get the camera out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it all started by doing television. Hmm. (laughs) And one of the things, many, many years ago, I did Britain's Got Talent, Hmm. and one of the things they wanted my dog to do was to walk into the camera and touch the lens with her nose. (laughs) But I was allowed to put chunks of pate on this camera that cost thousands of pounds (laughs) 
for her to lick off. So oh. now, I mean, she's 14 now. Yeah. And she still runs up to cameras and sticks her nose oh, on them. Oh, bless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once they've got a party trick and it's been well received, that's it. They'll do it again and again. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. They know how to please. Yeah. Yeah. The power <laughs> of positive training, though. You know, yes, it? indeed. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. My mantra has always been like, you know, the first time I went to Crofts, it was, uh, I'd been before in the small breederings, but in the main arena, oh my goodness, you know, mm. it's, uh, it was quite a daunting thing to look at it in the morning and think I'm going in there in front of all these people. <laughs> <laughs> and my mantra at the time was always anything I've rewarded will be repeated. My dog yes. will do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she did. Bless her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so there, there you go. So just, you know, it, because again, positive training, you know, it may take a little while, but, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But um, that's one of the, apparently one of the criticisms that non uh, or, or mixed trainers or whatever level at it that it, oh, it takes a while, mm-hmm. you know. Well, okay, yeah, it might take a while, but it will stay in there. My goodness, once you, yeah, you know, right. once it clicks. Yeah. Mm. Stays in there, and the dog does it with such joy. Yes, my dogs have never been accused of looking robotic. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you train positive. Not only do you get something that stays there, like you say, but you get something that looks joyous. Yes, yeah. I always say to people, I could never dance to, you know, Ralph Mattel, The Streets of London. Yeah, which is depressing and and sad. Yes, <laughs> my dogs always have to dance to something upbeat. <laughs> Such as I get older is perhaps not the most suitable for me. (laughs) I've watched you in the ring and, Uh you know, I've always come away feeling really happy and upbeat and, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, (laughs) I do rather love it, I have to say. Yes, yeah. (laughs) And the dogs love it. If you can find an activity that both you and your dog love, you've found a real treasure. Thanks to Heather for sharing her insights into Disc Dog and her thoughts on accessibility. We have the links where you can find out more about Heather and Disc Dogs on the Dogcast Radio site. If you and your dog enjoy sharing a sport or activity, I'd love to hear about it. Buddy and I tried our hand at many things and had such fun. Having a dog is about making the most of every day, finding fun and making memories. Having a dog and life in general, I guess. That's it for this time. So until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dog cast radio that's all one word dog cast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What's a dog's favourite instrument? A trombone.